Hi, I'm Tyler, and I'm an alcoholic. I want to just take a minute and just look at all of the miracles before me and, and all of the people that came out tonight to support Marie and, and, and my speaking. I so appreciate seeing so many familiar faces from my home group. And I want to acknowledge the group for asking me to speak and acknowledge all of the people that put this meeting on because we have a big meeting on Wednesday night and we know what it takes to put on a, a big meeting and I appreciate all the work put into it and congratulations to the cake takers and welcome to all of the newcomers. It's an honor to speak at Alcoholics Anonymous and you know in three weeks I'll have 25 years. only by the grace of God. And uh, I want to say to all of you, but mainly to the newcomers, you know, that you can get well in Alcoholics Anonymous. And you don't hear that enough. And it's in the big book. And um, you never have to drink again, ever, if you do what's outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I want, I have the, my watch up here, and I want to share, I want to, first of all, acknowledge Maria um, she's my granddaughter, and we're very family-orientated at our group. And she, uh, I've watched her grow through the work that she's done, and I watch her with the people that she sponsors. And, you know, if you want, it, for me to really respect and be attracted to someone in this program, I'm attracted to seeing them work with others. Uh, that's what makes me respect someone. I respect all the people, but that puts a special something in my heart that I see that you really have got this deal. Because if you've got the deal, you're working with others. So thank you. Um, I'm going to share a little bit about what it was like. Um, I am uh, from L.A. I grew up in L.A. And uh, I always, um, you hear this a lot, I don't know that I was born an alcoholic or not, but I, I know I was weird. And, um, <laughs> Did you feel, did, did, I just felt weird. I mean, I felt weird at 12, you know. I remember walking, I, I grew up, up by Mulholland, I grew up with a lot of movie people. And, you know, all the kids, uh, you won't remember because I'm too old for most of you to remember, but my little Margie, Gail Storm, was my next door neighbor, wow. right? And Steve Allen was next door to her. And, um, uh, uh, the guy from Gunsmoke that was part of our, the SRF, uh, Danny, Dennis Weaver, who lived up above me, and you know he was the weird guy of the neighborhood. And then up the street, up the street from him was Julie London. So all the kids would sneak over to watch Steve Allen's wife swim nude, Jane Meadows. Woo! You know, that was the big thing of the neighborhood. So. I mean, they do wilder things today. This was a long time ago. Um, so growing, and, and my closest friend in high school was Sally Fields. And um, so I hung out with a lot of people that were in the movie business or wanting to be. Jackson 5 lived down, uh, Michael Jackson lived down the street. Um, you know, a lot of people that were celebrities. And, you know, I remember walking to the bus stop at 12 and thinking, there's something wrong with me. But I didn't come from a family that you could say that to. You couldn't talk about feelings in my family. 
My parents both came from very poor backgrounds. They worked very hard. They wanted, they thought loving us was giving us money, which is nice. That's a nice thing. I mean, nothing's wrong with it. But nothing's wrong with it. I get where they came from. That's what meant to them. See, I've done enough work in this program to see this differently. You see, the word blame had to leave my vocabulary when I started to live a recovered life. But then... They, they, just, they both worked so hard because they felt that the one thing they wanted to give us was what they never had. My dad's dad was a milkman in New York City. And when he couldn't get up, that his dad was sick, my father in high school was up at 3 in the morning delivering milk. And, that's the, and he wanted us to have better. My mother wanted us to have better. And they were gone. They worked together. And my dad had a very successful aerospace business, made lots of money, and then went into industrial building. And, but I didn't see them a lot. And I didn't have a close relationship with my family. And you never talked about feelings. They were not interested. And I don't, I don't say if I talked about feelings, I wouldn't have drank. But, but it was something that I saw in my life. And... I had learning disabilities, I still have them, and they didn't know it then, so I struggled a lot in school. So when I got to where I could go to college, my parents looked for where they could buy me into. Because I didn't have the grades. I didn't have the grades. So they knew they could, they bought me into a private school. I'm from LA, and I was on a bus to Columbia, Missouri. Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. I mean, Missouri. I was on the bus, headed to this girls' college, brother, right? But it wasn't, I wanted to be an actress. And they had a very good acting. I didn't really care. As I'm driving from, from, as I'm driving from Kansas City to Columbia, Missouri on the bus, there's not a mountain. There's not a mountain. There's not a mountain. And there's pickup trucks and plaid shirts. And oh, brother. You know, I'm a freaking surfer hippie girl from California. And I get to there. I get off the bus. which It's right. Columbia, Missouri is also the University of Missouri. So all the boys at the University of Missouri are over there to see the buses that land to go into Stevie College. Right? And they're checking them out, you know. And the, the boys were cute. But anyway, I go, I get to my dorm and I go and I call my dad and I say, oh no. I am uh, not staying in Columbia, Missouri. My dad says, just give it 30 days. And you know, that was a great thing. And I gave it 30 days and I stayed there. And you know, I only look back on my time in college that I wish I had been sane enough and stable enough to have benefited from this great school that I was at. But I wasn't right. People don't do the... Con people don't... I was drinking the minute that I... I hadn't partied a lot in high school, but I, when I got there and we started drinking and hanging around with the fraternities and the sororities and hanging around and partying, I mean, I was doing cough syrup and tequila. I mean, that is very disturbing. <laughs> We were taking Coracetin RF and dumping 16 pills and chasing it with tequila. That is not normal. And, 
and tripping, you know, and this is what they were doing, you know, in the school. And so I did, I'm going to give you, I did three years there in two summers. I did two years of summers. I was going to be an actress. You see, I know now because I've done enough work that I wanted to be an actress because like in Bill's story, he wanted to be important. I wanted to be loved. See, I didn't feel that. I didn't feel it. It's not my mom's fault. It's just the way it was. But I wanted to feel important. And being an actress would give me that. But I wasn't that good. <laughs> so, <laughs> I wasn't. So I got, I got mixed up with some fringe people. Uh, the SDS, some of you don't know that. We were marching against Vietnam. We, were, we had some violent stuff that was going on, right? And I got mixed up with the crowd. And by the time... I was in my third year of college. I had been before three state grand juries, and I was on my way to a federal grand jury for interstate transportation of illegal things and firearms. And I was 19. I went to college at 17. And my poor father, my advisor called me and said, you know, I don't know what the hell you did now. But they, you got to get out of here. And I went home to L.A., and two days later, the marshals. The marshals are who subpoena you, by the way. If you ever see a marshal at your door, it's not a speeding ticket. Um, but, uh, right? So my poor dad, the marshals are at the front door, and they subpoenaed me back to appear before a federal grand jury for 23 counts in Kansas City, Missouri. And when you go before a federal grand jury, you cannot have an attorney with you. You can have no one with you. And anything you say can be used against you. They can take you to, to uh, they, you know, they can take you to a court. <laughs> well, he knows. I mean, he's my friend and he knows. Right? They can take you, not because he did it. <laughs> no, 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 no. But uh, just because he knows the legal system. Um, so they can take you to a court and the, the court will decide whether you have reason to take the fifth. Right? So I just went in there, you know, on the advice of my attorney. He didn't go in with me, but I went in there and I just told him, look, I've drank so much and done so many other things that my mind is warped and I can't remember anything. And so I, by the grace of God, you know, Father Mike spoke here not long ago and Father Mike is, is my priest and Father Mike said, says this beautiful thing. If you don't think God was in your life, look back over all the things in your drinking that you were saved from. And, you know, I love that because I look at these times where I... So I got out of that, went home, and my parents were locking the knife drawer. <laughs> they had locks on the knife drawer. They, and my, they told my brother to have nothing to do with me. So I moved out, and I, 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 I moved out, and I, what I wanted to do, I wanted to get into acting. So I started... I always... I drank... Every day. I like mixed drinks. I didn't mix them with anything but pills. <laughs> a little heroin. A little crack. I won't go into drunk because this is Alcoholics Anonymous, but I always like mixed drinks. <laughs> right? So I started going on these calls to be an actress. And while I was, 
I, I couldn't, there had to be a buffer between me and reality. I always say reality is highly overrated. <laughs> I never wanted to live in it. And this way of life has taught me to live in reality. But you see, I, when I was doing that, I started modeling down at the California Mart in downtown L.A. while I was trying to be an actress. And I started sketching because I was art and theater in college. And when I, I started sketching, and so one day I said, I'm going to go on an ad and see what they think of my sketches. So I went on this interview, and they hired me. And I designed clothes for 18 years, lived in Thailand, India, Hong Kong. And I had a wild career. But in that, though, when I started designing, designing clothes, to me, this is just what you say. This was God taking me to the purpose that he had put in my heart. I was a natural. My mother was a fashion designer also, so I grew up a lot, around a lot of that. But it was, I loved it. But I just needed to do a little drinking when I design clothes. <laughs> but you see, you can drink and do other stuff when you design clothes. No one cares. Now, if I'd worked in a bank like Jack, I wouldn't be able to do it. <laughs> right? They would have fired me. But they didn't care what I did. Right? And every... I would, I would push the limit at every job I had. And, you know, I got this job. One of my best jobs was... In fact, one of my first demands was at this boss... We did a company called Climax Mom and Apple Pie, and he, the guy was a wonderful guy to me. And I, I took this company from nothing to making millions. And this guy, I, I got a better, I always left for a better offer. You know, I was never satisfied. I, I'm going to tell you how living life was so unsatisfactory. There was something in me that just always thought the next one was better, the next boyfriend, the next girlfriend, the next job, the next house, the next car would be better. And see, I'm grateful that I had a life. I lived a life out there at 26, 25 years old. I was driving a Dino Ferrari. People were not, I mean, I'm almost 68 years old. They weren't driving them in L.A. then. I was driving around like a movie star. I was dating Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. I was, he, oh, he was hanging with Charles Manson. It was weird. He <laughs> was. I'm telling you. So, so, you know what he'd do? He's dead now, so I can talk about him. You know what he'd do? You know what he'd do? This is what he'd do. This is what he'd do. Now, you don't think that I was, something was wrong with me. I would go out on his boat with him. You know, he died, diving under the boat and coming up, I'm sure loaded. But um, uh, I would go out on his boat with him. And the first time I went out, just him and me on the boat, he starts throwing all this bloody meat overboard. I think, this is so weird. And all of these sharks come. And he takes out a shotgun and starts shooting these sharks. This is true. But you know what's even weirder? I went out with him again! <laughs> what the hell? What's wrong with me? I look back, I think, duh! So... We used to hang out at Brian Wilson's house in Bel Air. And um, in fact, at that time, he came to my... I was living in West... Well, let me go back. I got into a relationship that lasted 11 years with an undercover narcotics cop. <laughs> you see, I don't just like alcohol. I like intensity. I don't like intimacy. I like intensity. Ah, I learned how to have intimacy through this program. But then I wasn't interested in it. No. Lots of sex. Lots of drugs, lots of alcohol, and let's get it on. And so, 
I got in this relationship with this undercover narcotics cop. He was a badass. He was nuts. Listen, this guy, and he knew everything I was doing. And no, no, I would come home to my house, and there would be eight plain clothes car. I knew all of them. The group was called the Whiz Kids out of L.A. I know, knew all these guys. And they all knew what I did, and none of them cared. This is the 70s, and it was very different in right, Deanna? Right, in that time. It was very different. Um, and, uh, you know, when you live a crazy life, a little bit of crazy, you go, that's a little weird, right? And then it's, but, you know, incomprehensible demoralization means that I begin to accept things that I promised myself I would never do, right? And I, and I, I thought, you know, this lifestyle, living with this guy, lot, no one could know where I live. We ha you have, when you're an undercover, plainclothes narcotics, you always live at a dead-end street. <laughs> because that way they know every car that's, correct? Every car that's parked on the street. I mean, it was a crazy lifestyle. When I got in the relationship with him, I was about 20, 21, and he said to me, you know, uh, you need to learn how to shoot and carry a gun. <sighs> I just thought that was great. <laughs> Not a problem. You know? Just give me a couple tequilas. A co See, I like to line up tequila gold shooters. 13 is my favorite number. And I like to see where I get carried out. Will it be a six? Will it be a nine? I get, I get carried out a lot of places. You know? But I tell them first, honey, you're good looking. When I'm out, you carry me out. I tell them who needs to carry me out. So, so I'm at the range. But see, he got me this Walther PPK. That's what James Bond carried. I like that. So I had a cool automatic 9mm Walther PPK. I knew how to shoot it, and I always packed it because, you see, no one could know where I lived. I could, he taught me how to check when you're followed driving because at that time we didn't have cell phones, and I had to know. If I, I mean, see, all this is insanity, right? I'd walk in my house, and there'd be guys spread eagle in the kitchen with a gun to his head. Nothing new, right? See, this is outrageous, right? But it became normal. I couldn't tell the truth from the false. But I told him, you know, I really got to get out of this relationship. This relationship is just wearing on me. Not that the alcohol wasn't wearing on me. See, when it says, I'm an alcoholic of the hopeless variety, I want to quit but can't, I never wanted to quit. I never, I wanted to control the circumstances around my drinking. But I never wanted to quit drinking. I thought the circumstances, he was the problem. That guy was the problem. So I said to him, I'm leaving. So uh, he held a gun to my head for 16 hours and said, no, you're not leaving. And I did move out, and that's when I moved to Westwood. And I thought, I'm going to date other guys. But what, this is what, I, I, I'm so disturbed about what love is. You know, today, even in my heart, I can feel like I love him, but I know it's not true, even though it's been so long ago, because... You know, when you're young and you have that first love, even if it's sick, you still love him in some way. I mean, I have compassion for him today because I've done enough inventory and enough work to know that his mother was an alcoholic. And he was in the bars pulling his mother out. And he had his, his own pain and his own sickness. But this was really what I thought was the love of my life. The problem was when I started dating in Westwood, uh, he would wait in the underground garage 
if I dated anyone and then put a gun to their head and tell them never to come back. They never came back. <laughs> never. So my dating was just a little impar impaired. Um, but you know what I did? Inside of me, I felt like he must really love me. <laughs> no one would do this unless they love me. No one would go to these lakes. I moved back. <laughs> and during this time, my drinking, I, like I told you, I drank every day and did other things. I went overseas. At this time, I wanted to get, I took a job in the fashion business overseas. So I went over to, I lived in Bangkok, Thailand, and I lived in New Delhi, India, and I lived in Hong Kong. And it was great, but I was, I was around 30, and I was getting to the end of my career where I could really at all handle alcohol. I mean, I can't say I ever handled alcohol. It handled me. When I drank, I had the physical allergy, the craving, the loss of control. I never knew what that was. I never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life. And I want to go to right before I got sober. I came back from living overseas, got out of the relationship with the undercover guy. I got out of it by him chasing me with a gun and me outrunning him and me calling the SWAT team to pick him up. And, and, and them asking me to drop the charges. Of course I did. You know, so I dropped the charges. And um, uh, I could write a book on the things that happened to me in that relationship. I mean, we'd be in bed at night. And we'd hear a noise, and we'd both roll out of bed, pick up our guns, and case the house. This was normal. This wasn't abnormal. This was normal. I mean, my life was so insane that I lost such touch with anything. But I never, nothing, I wasn't interested in normal. My design job wasn't normal. My home relationship wasn't normal. At night, he didn't know this. I was turning tricks and um, uh, uh, flying on Elvis Presley's plane to Vegas and doing a lot of business with that crew at the Hilton. And I was very involved in a wild, wild life. I know it's, it, it sounds hard to believe. It's hard for me to believe it. When I talk about me, I have a lot of compassion for the sick, sad, lost woman that I was. That's right. That didn't know. I didn't have a clue, you guys. And so my life just went downhill after I got out of that relationship. I want to go back to one. To, you know how it says insanity is the lack of proportion? That I can't put the consequences, the stuff that happens to me when I drink, right? I can't put that to drinking. It won't happen this time. It will be different. What happened last time won't happen. I'll control it this time, it will, right? I was involved... This is one of the crazier stories. I have a lot of them, but I won't tell them all. Where's Deanna? Uh, um, I have some really crazy st stories. Um, I was uh, asked to um, go to a third world country and help break someone out of prison. Now, this is the truth. And we were going to uh, drug the, smuggle stuff in to drug the prison. And uh, I did work undercover. I won't give you any details about that. But... Um, I think back on that time, right? I'm there in the third world country at 27 years old, right? Going, you get this in other countries, you, on Sundays, you could spend the day in the cell. And it ain't that great. But so I'm there in the cell all day long, right? Doing what we had to do. 
You know, it never dawned on me that that was a bad idea. <laughs> it never dawned on me. Like, oh, you want to go? Yeah. See, I, there's something wrong. Sanity is rational thought. I couldn't wait. This is not a good idea. This is what, what might happen to you. Without the power of God, I'm never going to be returned to sanity. So I'm going to go to right before I got sober. I was living on the streets, doing prostitution, lost everything. And um, uh, two guys that were my johns, one of them said to me, you know, I got this guy that works for me. He's a drug and alcohol counselor, and I really want you to talk to him. Not interested. Not interested. But he wouldn't leave me alone about this guy. And finally I said, just to get for him to leave me alone, okay. I was living off the 10 freeway at, How at a Howard Johnson's off Indian Hill Boulevard, if any of you know the area of Pomona. It's a rough area, and um, my life was rough. And uh, he, finally he th I said, okay, I'll talk to him. So it's 2 o'clock, this guy comes walking across the parking lot to see me, and he's all skinny and looks kind of messed up. And I thought, okay. So he walks in the door and he says, you know, my name's John. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict, and I'd like to talk to you. And I said, you can talk to me, man, but I'm drinking vodka and smoking crack. Whatever you want to do. And he said to me, he said to me, you smoke it up and you drink it up. And you just let me talk to you. And he talked to me for two hours. I had never heard about Alcoholics Anonymous or a 12-step program in my life. And, I, and this guy talked to me for two hours and said to me, I have 12 tools. Never mention the big book. I'll give you a tool a month, and you'll never have to go back to drinking again. And at the end of that two hours, he looked bad because I didn't know this. He was a kidney transplant patient. This was, he lost, this was his first loss of a kidney. And um, at the end of two hours, he looked at me and he said, he wrote his phone number down on a piece of paper and he handed it to me. He said, if you ever get sick of dying, give me a call. I thought, man, that guy's a little serious, ain't he? <laughs> I thought, I ain't dying. I'm just living on the streets doing prostitution. I don't know what his problem is. <laughs> but you know what? You know how they say this is the language of the heart? And what comes from the heart goes to the heart? And I could never not hear his damn voice. I would be drinking and I'd hear it. Me, he never have to look like this again. I got 12 tools. It was like he was in my head. <laughs> so I'd call him and I'd say, hey, John, this is Tyler. He goes, yeah, what do you want? He's kind of a tough guy. What do you want? I said, I, I want to talk to you. He goes, don't call me till you're done. Boom. And he'd hang up the phone. <laughs> this guy's a little edgy. <laughs> right. You know, God sends us all the right angels. Yeah. And there wouldn't have been a man or woman that could have reached me but this guy. And at three months after that, I was in the bathroom with a gun to my head. This is, an this is not an unusual story in AA. Lots of us have 357 Magnum spiritual experiences. It's not unusual. <laughs> I hear it, right? right? It's not unusual. You hear it? I got a gun to my head, and I'm praying. And I don't pray. I came from an atheist family. I'm not, I don't pray, you know, only when I want to get out of trouble. And I'm on my knees and begging God for the courage to pull the trigger on this gun. And that, the bathroom was like maybe one at night, and the bathroom lit up. And I heard this voice, and the voice came outside of me, 
and inside of me. And it, the words were like, your life is being spared. So you can help other alcoholics and addicts. I didn't know what that meant. I'd never been to, I didn't even think about it, right? I went to bed after that, and I got up the next morning. It was December 26, 1989. I got up the next morning, and I was walked out early in the morning outside of my room. It was misty out. I couldn't believe it. I went to bed one person and woke up another. I walked out. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I didn't want to drink. I was shocked. I was amazed. And I went and I called that guy and I told him what happened. He wasn't surprised at all. He said, it's in the big book. Bill had the same story. It's great. And he came over and became my sponsor. He sponsored me for eight years in this program until he passed from, he had another kidney transplant. But I want to talk about my second, I did a lot, I was, I did the steps out of the big book. I did everything that this beautiful program told me to do. I did Vista Jail for 10 years, County Detox down when it was Island Street. I did it every Sunday for 10 years. Because you see, I went where my story fit. You know, I went where the, I think it's important to go where your story fits. And my story fit in those places because it was a low, low bottom. But at 13, 12, 13 years sober, I was laying in my bedroom and I was thinking, I'm 13 years sober, 12 years sober, and I want to blow my effing brains out. You see, I stayed so busy in this program and so busy in service and so busy in sponsoring and so busy in meetings that I wasn't acknowledging what was going on inside of me. You know why I didn't acknowledge it? Because there wasn't an answer. No one had an answer. I would say to people, I'm dying inside. Oh, this too will pass. I'm going to fucking pass. <laughs> right? Oh, it'll pass. Right? Right? No one had an answer for me. Right? Oh, just pray more. Work with others. That wasn't working. I hit a wall. You know what it says on the bottom of 25? Blotting out the consciousness of my intolerable situation sober. Not just drunk, but sober. I was blotting it out by service and image management. And, oh, don't, you know, oh. Right? So... God works miracles. This road is full of miracles. If you don't, if you're not living the promises that are in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous, because you're not doing what's in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and if you don't do what's in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, you won't live the promises. And my life was like that. In my life today, I'm living the promises. And, and, And it's true, right? So the next day, you know, God works. The next day, I sponsored this girl, and the next day, I run into her, and she says to me, hey, I know you love to listen to CDs, and I love to listen to speakers. you got to hear this speaker. This speaker is going to blow you out of the water. Oh, man. I put that, that, it, it was Mark Houston. I put, he's passed now, and he used to sponsor that guy right over there. And that guy, I know that guy for 10 years from Mark. And I, you know what I did? I listened to that CD so much, my friends started calling me Tyler Houston. They said, you just that damn turned into that damn CD you listened to. So you know what I did? I found Mark in Texas. I sent him a first-class ticket, and I flew him out here. And, you know, he's a tall guy, very tall, and likes a little luxury, right? First class, right? I got him. He's on his way. And he taught me a way to go through this big book. His sponsor was Don Fritz out of the, the God Squad out of York Street in Colorado. And these group of guys were hardcore big book guys. And I want to tell you, I don't say everyone has to do the work like I do it, but I better know my truth. See, my truth is I'm sicker than most. My truth is that every year I develop new delusions that need to be put through the 12 steps. You know, I love delusions. 
there, I don't like reality. And the one thing that when I go through a four step, those delusions gets to be smashed and that fear gets to be smashed. But Mark showed me a way to go through the work that changed my life. You know what Mark said to me on the phone before I even flew him out here? He said to me, I'm going to send you, you know this, Tony, I'm going to send you an inventory for your present day agnosticism. I said, I don't have any. I don't even like that word. <laughs> he said, I don't care what you like. I'm sending you this inventory. You know, I didn't even know what it meant. I didn't know that my life, I didn't even know until the, in the beginning of my, see, I do all 12 steps every year. That's what I learned from these guys. I'm not saying anyone else has to do it. That's what's made my life rock for the last 12 years. Yeah. It doesn't mean you have to. You need to know your truth. Maybe meetings is enough for some people. I believe it is. Not for me. I have to go deep. I have to go thorough. I have to work a program of depth and weight. And I have to renew my, my relationship with God every year. I don't take a new third step, but I confirm that third step every year by going through and look at the big book and see how many times it says new you will have a new relationship with your creator every year you can have a new experience see the delusion that I'm like other people or presently maybe has to be smashed why does the big book say presently maybe see I'm not never going to be like those normies never don't think I'm going to get sober and be like normal people oh who wants to be anyway <laughs> they're going to hell right but I'm, you know how, see, I'm not like normal people when it comes to alcohol, pills, or drugs either, but I'm not like normal people when it comes to resentment. Can you afford it? I can't afford it. I can't afford what separates me from this relationship with God. So I start to see that this idea that I'm like other, the delusion that I'm like other people, they put presently, because you know, Tyler, you're 25 years or you're 30 years or you're this or you're five years going through the big book. Presently, today, you'll never be like other people. Thank God they put that in the big book to yeah. tell me that I'm not going to be like other people. This book is so divinely inspired that every time I go through it, I see new things. See, I don't... I don't go through the big book for knowledge. Knowledge will not keep me sober. I go through for an experience, turning statements into questions, asking myself, is that me? Do I believe that? Has that happened to me? Has it happened to me? Has God entered into my heart and lives in a way that's truly miraculous? Yes or no? Because if he hasn't, you've got to do some more work. Because that book promises it. And don't you doubt what that book promises. Because if you doubt it, it's because you ain't done it. And you better do it if you want to have within that book. Woo! <laughs> So I started doing the work in a different way with Mark, and Mark showed me and then introduced me to Dan and other people that do, do the work. It isn't anything different. It's just doing considerations. It's, they call it the path of consideration, and it's a very deep and effective way. So you can take people. You, I mean, we got to acknowledge, you know, Sponsorship sucks in AA today. We got to acknowledge AA has difficulties and it is my responsibility and yours to stand up and be more present for the people that you're working with. Don Pritz said there's not a problem in AA that can't be solved with better sponsorship. And I believe it 100%. Not the meetings, not anything else. It's better hands-on, caring, loving, caring. I'll do anything that I'll, I'll go to hell and back for you. I used to say I won't go to hell for you, but I will. I'll go to hell and back for you. I'll do anything as long as you want this way of life. So I started doing work. Mark wasn't, oh, so I looked at this agnostic inventory and I saw that my whole life was full of it. See, I had given God my alcoholism, my addiction, and my sex life. Now, I really couldn't believe when I read on page 70 that my sex life 
in the hands of God would be better than anything I could imagine. That's unbelievable to me. Right? It's true. I've had some good sex in sobriety. And it's, and it's been committed. And it's been monogamous. And it's been with one person. <laughs> My ex-girlfriend's dying back there right now. <laughs> um, see, I, I've had a relationship with a man, and I've had a relationship with a woman, but they're not together. <laughs> they're dying. Well, I don't, I, I'm not going to label myself. I love who I love. And I've been single a long time. And I guess if there's one thing I could say is I really would love to have a loving relationship with a man. But it, I don't seek it and God hasn't put it in my life. And I'm fine if I do and I'm fine if I don't. Because, you see, I have a peace that I never had. And when I gave God, when I looked at that present-day agnosticism, I had given God only my alcoholism and my sex life and my addiction. I had not given God my life. God, I offer myself to thee. What does that mean to me? What is offering myself? I never gave God my whole life. I never saw what the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous offered me. I never saw this deep and effective relationship. The number one principle in the big book is reliance on God. A God that thank God I don't understand and the mystery of it is still before me. And when I saw, Mark sent me a, a, a also he sent me an unmanageability inventory and had me go down the bedevilments. The un, see, I always thought, oh, physical allergy, mental obsession, that's the problem. I recover from that. I can't keep myself from a drink. And I can't control the amount when I drink. But what about the internal unmanageable condition? I thought that was out here. See, my whole life was getting the ducks in a row. But the problem was when the ducks were in a row, I was still drinking. Mm -hmm. And in sobriety, it says, setting aside, we tell why life was so unsafe. See, I don't have a living problem. Don't you get sober and have a living problem. Everything that I live is a drink. If I'm... At my work, and I'm stealing at my work, right? It's not just a living problem. How long can I steal before I'm picking up a drink? That's right. mm -hmm. I have to live by spiritual principles. And the main one is reliance on God and honesty. And I can't do that without God. So as I go through that third step and I look, God, I offer myself to thee. That God will be the father. God will be the principal. And God will be... The director. And so, to me, the father, a father is a provider. And I say, how well have I provided what I need in my life? And every time I go through that third step confirming that decision, God, is, lately for me, has been more the father. But then I look at the principle, you know. How well have I been making me who I would have me be and making you who I'd have you be? How well have I done that? Maybe God should do that. And how well have I been doing it directing my life? And so I take that three-part relationship each time that I go through the work, and I reaffirm that. And then I go into that fourth step. And, you know, it says, relieve me of the bondage of self. What is the bondage of self? The bondage of self is the third column of my inventory. What I need you to be to be okay. Where my security lies. See, I have a play inside of me. 
what I need. See, I'm not even that resentful at you. I'm more resentful that you're not doing my play. And I have an idea of what... See, I have, my nature, nature means the inside of me. I can't control my emotional nature and the devilments that's inside of me. My nature is selfishness and self-centeredness. And my nature is to believe that I can fix the inside of me by controlling external circumstances. And that if I just get it all right, I'll be okay in the inside. Sober. Until the boyfriend leaves. Until your friend gets cancer. Until you lose your job and your house. Then what? The old timers used to say, this is an inside job. And they knew what they were talking about. And there is a life inside of me that I never touched at, at, at 13 years sober. And when I write that inventory and I look, see, I put, I put false value on hanging on to resentments. And I don't know it. I delude myself about you. See, that offers me, every one of those inventories offers me a way to live in peace. And I let peace today be the thing that dictates decisions in my life. Is this going to bring me more peace or is this going to bring me less peace? And I live by 10 and 11. I do 84 through 88 every day. I write to God every day I do an hour. I went back to the Oxford group and I went back to Buckman and to see what those guys, and Sam Shoemaker, and read lots of their books. I wanted to see what Dr. Bob and the good old timers were ta talking about. And these guys were talking about direct relationship with God. They were sitting in Dr. Bob's house with Ann, and they were getting direct guidance from God. My job as a sponsor is to not let you be dependent on me, but to take you through the steps, to put you into position, to receive the grace of God, to have this... Re I take people from the beginning. Take it to quiet time. See what God says, right? Take it to quiet time. See what... Because you see, I'm stealing from you. I can't fix you. I can help you to be in a position to receive the grace of God and have that relationship. See, it says in the book, God will solve all of your problems. Right. Does that mean all of your problems? Yeah. I think it means all of your problems. <laughs> so I, each day when I do this hour, I'm not saying, you see, I did it, started doing this hour because Mark Houston stayed at my house and Tony knows this. You don't, he would tell me, don't even knock on the door. Five to six. I never saw anything like this. I didn't do 10 and 11. I didn't do quiet time. But when I, when I started to get in the books where Marquez and these people were talking to me and Dan Sherman about this kind of meditation, I know, how good would my relationship be with my partner if I kissed him good morning and kissed him good night and didn't talk to him all day? <laughs> I need this time with God in the morning to carry this through my day. This is the life I want to lead. Now... The program works me. I'll be in a situation and my insides will start praying automatically. That prayer is absolutely consciousness changing. And the meditation is, what does God want me to do today? Just take a, mo a morning and sit in quiet time and ask God what he wants you to do that day with a pen and paper in hand. And you know what? God loves you. He loves me and he has a great plan for your life. And remember, it says the great fact is just this and nothing less. That we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. And if you've had anything less, don't settle for it. 
that have revolutionized our whole way of thinking, believing, and seeing. The central fact of my life is that God has entered into my life and entered into my heart and lives in a way which is truly miraculous. I have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of life, balanced in mind, body, and spirit. And don't you miss it. God bless you. Yeah.